Welcome to the NAS Heroes podcast, where we talk to researchers and leaders working on neonatal abstinence syndrome. I'm your host, Amanda Shea, the Director of Marketing at Propella. In this episode, we are talking to Dr. Carla Saunders. So welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about you and your professional background? So I am a neonatal nurse practitioner. Um, I have uh, been involved in neonatology since I graduated nursing school. My first job was in newborn intensive care as a new graduate um, RN. And uh, that was my introduction into the world. I absolutely loved it. Um, I met a nurse practitioner there and I immediately knew that's the role I wanted to be in in the future. So I, I set my goals on that and was able to get several years experience in and then attended um, practitioner school and went straight into uh, another NICU as a neonatal nurse practitioner. And so that time frame was in the um, late uh, 80s, early 90s. And just before, of course, the opioid epidemic spiked. And so those first 10 years or so, I didn't really see much um, of this, though I did have some experience with some babies who had um, uh, cocaine exposure and one that was very, very specific for me in, in that first two years of work. Um, and so I went, I went through my career and in 2010, my journey really took a big shift and I became very involved in uh, trying to find a better way to treat babies who were withdrawing, which really drove me into the world of adult addiction, uh, a space I never thought I would be in. Um, Admittingly, those of us who work in the NICU usually say we work there because we don't generally like dealing with adults. <laughs> <laughs> we like tiny patients. Um, and, uh, and so all of a sudden I found that your, your parents are always part of your patient, but this was in a whole entirely different aspect brought levels of complexity to uh, caring for these infants that was just for many of us mind boggling. Um, we just had no idea where to begin and how to address the situation. So, um, so my career ended up getting into a place where I was uh, interacting with um, people within the adult um, addiction treatment world and then that took me into the prevention uh, world and opened my eyes to a whole nother set of problems and during that time uh, it, it really became um, apparent that it would it would be beneficial to get my doctorate so so this whole thing, this whole experience um, was a wave that also drove me professionally to um, seek my doctorate in, in nursing. And so in 2017, I graduated with my doctorate 
in nursing practice. Um, and I didn't intend to really do anything specific with it, but starting my own consulting company um, and did some legal work, um, legal consulting, and then COVID hit and everything kind of came to a screeching halt. And I um, have gone back to uh, working at the bedside again um, and trying to wait and see what happens with all of the political arena and the um, healthcare arena and how COVID ends up shaping kind of the future of healthcare or how we can utilize what's happened to shape uh, the future of healthcare. So my consulting company is just kind of sitting right now waiting um, for where its right place is, uh, which I believe is there. You know, it's interesting when we've had researchers and, and leaders in the fields come on the podcast, um, you know, I'm sure you started seeing NAS infants around, you know, when the opioid epidemic started happening. So, you know, is there a particular experience that you came across? Were individuals you were working with familiar with it? Because, you know, what we found is that a lot of professionals were, were just trying to find out as much information. And again, we don't have a standardized mm -hmm. uh, protocol for treatment and diagnoses. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm interested to hear kind of like your first experience working with NAS infants. So, so, I was in a unique, uh, somewhat unique position because I work in a, um, a children's hospital. So we don't have deliveries, right, in, in the children's hospital. We try very hard not to do that. Um, so all babies were transports in. And at that time, it was 21 surrounding counties that, that we serve. Um, and in 2010... Uh, we really started seeing an increase in um, the number of infants that we were admitting for withdrawal. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there wasn't a standardized approach. Everybody kind of treated the best they could. We had, because we were doing quality improvement work, we had a database where we could track a lot of um, different diagnoses um, and, and trends. And so it seemed like we were really getting inundated with these babies. And so I went back and I looked at what our trends had been. And in 2008, um, we had admitted somewhere in the neighborhood of, of um, well, less than 20 babies over the course of the year for withdrawal, mm -hmm. um, which surprised me. Um, you know, out of 800 admissions a year, I guess, you know, it's easy to not feel very overwhelmed by that. Um, in 2009, um, we had admitted a little uh, over 20, closer to 30. And by June of 2010, we had admitted 48 already. At that point, we had an average daily census. This is not the number of babies admitted per day, but mm -hmm. this 
the number of babies in our unit at any one point in time that we're withdrawing, where that average daily census was six to eight infants that we would have. And it was a 60 bed um, NICU. So we were really beginning to feel that. These babies, um, of course, as you know, are very easily disturbed and, and, um, and hypersensitive to, to sound um, in a busy NICU, especially if you're an open bed NICU, uh, there's a lot of commotion going on. And when a baby is sick next to you, um, you know, there can be a lot happening. When the NIS infant can't sleep, it significantly affects the critically ill infant who needs a very, very quiet environment. And so we were beginning to notice these children because it was, it was creating a real problem in our NICU with where do we put them so that they're comfortable and they're not disturbed. And so that, you know, if they are upset and struggling, it's not overstimulating one of the critically ill infants, right? Mm -hmm. I always, always say, um, you know, people ask how sick these babies can be. And it's, it's certainly if they have other comorbidities, it complicates it beyond, um, you know, beyond uh, into another level. However, in and of itself, if they're just a, a you know, term baby withdrawing, um, it's extremely intense, more intense. I think if you ask any NICU nurse, um, they would say the same thing. These babies are extremely intense, but they're not usually critical. Mm -hmm. there are critical babies, they have a whole different um, set of issues. And so um, it was how do we how do we accommodate both needs and the needs of those families in um, this NICU space? And so we had a kind of a special care nursery, a smaller section where we had infants that um, were getting better. Um, and we would put those infants in this other section. Um, and so we thought, well, we'll take all of our withdrawing babies and we'll put them over there. Right, and then, then they can kind of all be together. Well, take a minute and imagine that that really didn't work very well. It worked great in the main NICU for the critically ill babies, but now you've got all these kids together and someone's always, somebody was always crying, right? And more oh. than somebody. Mm -hmm. And now you've got nurses isolated with these patients. And um, the day that it really hit me, I was walking into work and I got there around eight and the nurses started at seven. And so just an hour into the shift and I'm walking down the hallway and one of the nurses was walking towards me. Um, she had a, a, a baby and um, it was crying and um, I'm trying to, get out of her way because she looks like she has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to move and I'm moving and she's moving in front of me and I'm moving and she's moving in front of me. And I'm, you know, my mind is, okay, what do I have to do today? And yeah, you know, not paying attention. And she just stopped square in front of me. And I realized, Oh, she wants me. And she looked at me and her hair was a mess. She was broken 
out in a sweat. The baby's sweating, the baby's crying. And she just looked at me and she had tears in her eyes and she said, someone has to do something. Yeah. And, and I thought, why are you telling me? Tell one of the doctors. Right. <laughs> but I was, I was the lead of our medical practice as far as the practitioners went. And I held our, our team meetings and kind of corralled everybody from that standpoint. Um, I worked very closely with our medical director at the time. And as I said, we had had several really successful um, multidisciplinary um, quality improvement projects. And I think that's what she was, you know, she was indicating was we've got to organize the masses again and we've got to figure out what we can do. And so that's what I did. I went to the group of people that we had worked on projects before, which was um, nursing management and nurses and administration, hospital administration, you know, practitioners and, and our medical team, the doctors, and um, included social workers and physical therapists, occupational therapy. Uh, we had child life because we were our child, a um, children's hospital. So we had child life and all the different pharmacy. That was a big one. Um, you know, all the different departments um, had a representative. And we, my best friend um, was one of the nursing administrators. And I went to her and I said, Sherry, we're going to have to do something. And uh, looks like we've got another project. The difference was that the work we'd done before, there were other models for quality improvement in those areas, how to prevent um, central line infections, how to prevent ventilator acquired pneumonias, um, various projects like that. Other organizations had done state organizations had done work in that arena and there were some models to go by this had nothing we benched across the united states we called the biggest and the best um we called the smallest and nobody had even an approach hmm. to the infant there were lots of different ideas but there was no standardized not even approach Mind you, that's not even the treatment, right? So there's standardized treatment, but how do you even standardize your approach to these infants and their families? And if you're treating one patient um, with one medication and another with another medication, um, you're weaning it differently, um, you know, you're trying to do it based on your best knowledge, based on what's out there, the evidence, and based on what we can tell, what information we have about what the babies, you know, maybe withdrawing from and how much. Um, so everybody was kind of tailoring it to each individual child. Parents would talk and then they would get very, very angry because, you know, you're treating so-and-so's baby differently than my baby and that baby gets to go home. My baby's not getting to go home at X number of days. And also not realizing, you know, the complexities of parents who are in different stages of their addiction, their retreat treatment or their and or their recovery, right? So having no idea how to even approach families from that aspect, this was 
you know, just trying to figure out ways to approach the infant. So <clears throat> we, um, we brought the task force together and the very first meeting we had, I don't even know how people heard, I guess people out in our, you know, uh, referral base heard. And we had pediatric office managers wanting to come. You need to hear what's happening when they come in for or don't show up for their pediatrician appointment. We had people um, who were treating moms um, that said, you know, you need, you need to hear about this aspect of it. And so we opened the table up and said, come, come on, come all. Let's, let's build this life raft. And I've given lectures about it before. I've talked about it was, I describe it as building a life raft while you're drowning is what it felt like. Um, I can imagine. Oh, yeah. Gosh. I mean, you know, because all the while we're trying to do this, our numbers are just increasing. Right. Um, and, you know, we would get asked why. Well, you're, you know, you're diagnosing everybody. You're, we're over diagnosing. Well, no, what happens is step one is you go to the American Academy of Pediatrics and you look for guidance there. And what I found when I went there is there was some information on withdrawal. It, you know, it's been around. And there was some guidance there on screening. Um, we have other indicators that we screen infants by their maternal histories. So we screen them for various infections, um, other things that are really important in the first few days of life to make sure that they don't go home and get into trouble, um, you know, with um, something that we might have missed. And the only clue that we have is a maternal history, right? The baby doesn't come with that information. It doesn't come with that history. Its history is the maternal health record, right? Part of that means that screening for infants that are at risk for um, withdrawal is you have to know if there's a maternal history. And then what you find is we're not screening moms. So as I said, we had people from the community who were wanting to participate. And um, we had some of our OB offices that wanted to participate as well and uh, needed you know, guidance. And what do we do if we screen and we find a problem, what do we do with these moms? Because there was no, at that point, standard for the mothers either. Mm -hmm. The standard uh, was methadone and um, there were various reasons why our OBs were very, very reluctant to put moms on methadone. And so that was very difficult for them. They were, if I screen, then I don't know what to do with them. I, I want to get them you know, help, I want to get them good care, but I, I don't know where that exists in the community, right? So right. You're, you're very quickly going from the bedside into the community. I mean, this, this very quickly exploded into a community-wide um, effort. And so, um, so as we were able to get screening protocols in place, screening protocols in the newborn nursery meant there had to be screening protocols in the obstetrical world. And, and we didn't have everybody jump on board with that, but we had some, some critical practices and some of our critical referral areas that really were seeing 
high numbers of, um, of this were eager to participate. So as you screen, you're going to find more cases, kind of mm -hmm. see that with COVID, right? Um, and so, you know, our numbers very quickly increased and our max percentage in our nursery, it was 37 infants was our peak um, number of infants at any one point withdrawing. And that was out of 60 babies, which was over six, over 50% of our infants were there for the sole purpose of treatment for withdrawal. And um, that was in 2011, late of 2011. Um, so we, we started the task force um, in June of 2010. We um, put together a protocol and a quality improvement approach to evaluate our protocol um, and gave our first dose of um, medication on this protocol in um, November of 2010. Okay. By November of 2011, we opened a 16 bed, we annexed a portion of our hospital outside of our NICU, um, an extra 16 beds. And they were, by nature, they were private rooms. And so we had to reconfigure them for NICU specifications, but they stayed private rooms. And we were able to control the environment individually for each infant. And if an infant was having a bad day and needed it to be cool and dark, um, then we could do that with a given room where maybe the baby next door was getting close to going home and needed, you know, uh, to have more normal biorhythms and could tolerate more. Or if the baby on the other side was really, really struggling, um, that baby wasn't um, upsetting one of the other infants. Um, so we thought at that time we would have, it took three months to convert those rooms. And we had 16 rooms thinking we would always have probably two open rooms and that would serve multiple purposes for us. So we were, it was kind of a logical place to, to split those rooms. And so we kept the 16. And in that three months, when we opened the, the NAS unit, we had every room full and there were five infants in our main NICU waiting for a room to open. Wow. That, how fast it just exploded. And it took us about two years of PDSA, plan, do, study, act cycles of, um, you know, of ways to capture these babies and control their symptoms, when to wean them and how to wean them. And over a course of two years, um, we were able to get from an average length of stay initially, which was 35 days, down to an average length of stay of 19 days. And um, that length of stay is different than wean time. So there's wean time and then we have an observation period after that looking to make sure that there's no rebound 
And then oftentimes we would have further delays based on Department of Children's Services. Something would happen at the very end. So they became a very critical part of our team um, at a state level. And, and they instituted NAS teams um, of people who were specially trained across the state to handle uh, these cases um, so that we wouldn't run into delays and, and we would you know, have appropriate places to send them home and, and moms would have appropriate resources in place to help them. I can only imagine. Um, and that's just, that's not even all the, <laughs> not even all of the ins and outs that were involved um, because so much of it, there was the baby treatment. And once we got that pretty well um, oiled, um, then there was the whole other aspect with, with the families and the moms. And in the middle of all of that, our state, Tennessee, had instituted the um, amendment to the fetal assault law. Mm -hmm. That was July of 2014. And all of a sudden, we didn't have moms visiting. And it was detrimental. We were trying to get a program in place so that since we had, you know, initially, we figured we had a month and we encourage those moms to come and utilize that time, right? Where we could work with them, we could get them into appropriate referral. Um, and we were working on therapies that could be brought in to meet them where they were with their babies so they didn't have to leave. And plus there were lots of issues for them for transfer, transportation. So all of a sudden now, we have moms who aren't coming because they're so afraid. And then we saw our eye tracked as soon as that happened. I was asked to testify against that. Um, I testified before at the state level and I was asked to testify again. And I couldn't because my mother was dying. And that was a really, really, really difficult time for me. And I remember hearing on the nightly news, the national news, that it had passed. And I was in Pittsburgh at the time um, with my mom. And I was just, I, I, I was just so devastated. And, but I was able to do some tracking and, um, you know, help when it came time for that to sunset. And we were able to get that, to get that bill not to be a permanent part of our legislation. So that was, that was good down the road. But we saw our no prenatal care rates, our um, number of micro preemies, so not just withdrawal infants, but these are micro preemies. So you're, you're at risk for having a preterm birth if you don't get prenatal care and, um, and are at home or out of a medical institution because sometimes it was not at home, it was at a car or in a hotel, but we call those at home births, right? In one year. I mean, it was absolutely unbelievable. So our census is going up even more because we have all these babies who are withdrawing. Now we're getting an influx of babies who are preterm, babies who are sick with other complications because they haven't gotten prenatal care. Mm -hmm. And um, so again, it was a pretty strong lesson learned, but um, you know the, the, the factors... <laughs> and the things that are involved and, and you just, it's just a disease unlike any 
other, both for, you know, adolescents, adults, anybody other than an infant who is withdrawing. Addiction is such a complex disease and the ramifications for infants and families um, is so far beyond anything that we really ever saw in the NICU. And you could choose to try to just get the baby through withdrawal and get them home. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do that. And my medical director used to get asked, you know, why do you think, you know, why here? Why this place? You know, right. is, why is this the epicenter? And why is this happening? And there were some, certainly some demographic reasons why Appalachia has been at, at the center for the opioid epidemic. So it would make sense that it would then become the, epi the epicenter for withdrawal for NAS. However, you know, his answer was it was our team. It was the people that we had who were not capable of just ignoring and were not capable of only taking it so far and saying that somebody else's problem once they're out of here, right? We just need to get through this part of it. Um, and so that's when it became a, a real quest and really was the idea of transformational wellness is, is our healthcare system has failed us. Mm -hmm. um, we are so far behind the eight ball in tertiary, you know, medicine in, in reactionary, right? We, are always fixing things after they're broken instead of putting the dollars and putting the money into prevention. You know, we're born, we're born almost always with our mind, body, soul intact with our wellness. Right. And then it starts, you know, we spend, we, we spend the rest of our lives towards another end. We're not getting out of here alive. That's not going to happen, but we all want to live our best life until then, especially when we're young, we're all equal when we're, when we're young in that desire. Right. And that's not what we do. We separate everything. We become so specialized. We separate out everything and we disconnect that, you know, tummy issues in children could be, related to what's in migraines and all kinds of other things could be related to so many different factors, poor nutrition. It could be related to um, adverse childhood events that could be um, going on in the home, any number of things, right? We just, but we, we separate the brain though it controls everything we separate the mind part of the brain and we put this in this mental health category and we don't treat that as really the driving force to our wellness, which it really is. And so part of my quest during my um, doctoral work was really a concept of, of um, risk assessment, right? As the first vital sign. And that includes, you know, that's an overall risk. That's your overall um, physical and mental health risks. 
because those affect all my other vital signs. So if we address those things first, which is not what our comfort level is, that's not what we were, you know, taught to do necessarily, and certainly not holistically in medical school or nursing school. Um, that's for the behavioral health people, right? And so we don't. And if we think there's an issue, we refer you. But nobody, you know, there's not this connectedness. We don't work together holistically. And so the more, the more and the deeper that I got into the complexities of all of this, the more I really said it's, it's just so not about reforming healthcare. It's about transforming healthcare and really focusing on maximizing our wellness for as long as we can. We always are going to have acute episodes of illness. We're always going to have chronic disease that will pop up and we're going to, you know, not make it out of here alive. We're going to need surgeries. We're going to have traumas, all of these things. It, it doesn't put our medical world out of business at all. In fact, it, it brings people who have a healthier base into those acute episodes of care and have a much greater chance of a more successful and higher level of recovery. But we just, it's, we are just so ingrained in the system that we're in that we just can't see our way out of it. I don't know how we get out of it either. I don't know. I just know that that's the idea is that we just have to, it's like if we could forget what we know or how we do things and start all over, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. What would that look like? And that um, is kind of crazy because this all came from <laughs> all these little babies. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so important because it, it just speaks to this larger, I know, the, the huge disconnection between the mind, the body, and how the medical community treats it. And like you said, they're just automatically referred to behavioral specialists. And, you know, now research is showing how, you know, 90% of serotonin is in the gut. And so how all this relation with our, what's going on in our brain, with our physical body. And again, we, you know, we so much talk about how there's still so much of a stigma on mental health and addiction yeah. and this like morality thing that comes with addiction and that the research just doesn't show like if you're separating these moms you're punishing these moms mm -hmm. it's not it's not doing anything but making the whole situation well, just worse absolutely if you know anything you know if you study aces at all you know that that just adds another factor to the program and you know i would tell the, the nurses we had we ended up with a core group of nurses who really became passionate about um, doing this work. And I, I was one who ran from them. I ran from these when we had them here and there. I mean, again, I'm, I'm admitting, right? I went into neonatal because I liked little babies. Right. And I liked their parents, but I was treating the patient was the baby. And the parents were generally quite grateful and um, very receptive. And now you've got this whole other world. And you, know, you have people who um, I had to learn that I needed to ask the question. I needed to not be afraid to have the conversations. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have it. I'm not a mental health professional or you know, psychologist, psychiatrist. I didn't want to ask them, so when did you first start using? That felt like out of my arena. But I was taught that if you ask that question, generally people are pretty open. First of all, you're showing you care. You're engaging. And they will often tell you. And that's my clue. Now I know what developmental level I am speaking to with this parent who may be 16, who may be 25, who may be 41. Once I understood that, I could understand better how to communicate with the parents because I realized they're not what I'm looking at. Right. Right. They're at a different developmental stage. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I had to learn was about the science of addiction. And I had to learn how powerful it is. And I had to learn how that brain works. And once I got a handle on that, then I understood why just because somebody found out they were pregnant, they couldn't stop using. Mm -hmm. Why the power of denial that there's no way I could possibly be pregnant and they could have a baby and not know they were pregnant or why they might not get prenatal care or why now that they've seen this beautiful baby, they can't just stop. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I understood that when you put it in context of diabetes or other diseases, right. Do diabetics, always know because they can't their their body can't control their blood sugar that they can't have that you know piece of cake at at their best friend's birthday party or they make a choice to they're gonna pay for it right that wraps up our episode with dr carla saunders thank you for listening to the propella nas heroes podcast until next time take care